why do we have the storytelling hour, uh, hour, you know, the story for all ages? Why do we have that? Say that again? It's for us, right? The kids are an excuse. <laughs> the best books are the books you get in the kids section in the, in the bookstore, right? They have the fewest words, that always helps, but <clears throat> they just make their point in the most direct way possible without being didactic. I mean, you could do it better with PowerPoint, <laughs> you know, I suppose. Don't, you know, I, I don't know what you how you turn that story into a PowerPoint, but, you know, but that wouldn't work. People wouldn't buy that. They, I don't mean buy it materially. I mean, when they, we wouldn't buy into it if you just had PowerPoint dots on a, on a, on a slide. You have to have a story because story in and of itself moves us, it captures us. Our entire lives are governed by story. Anyone watching the, the impeachment uh, trial, so-called, <laughs> right? I mean, what we're really watching, I think, is a, a, a battle of competing narratives. Nobody's arguing over the facts, right? Everyone says, yeah, he did it, and then, one group of storytellers say, that's the end of democracy. And the other group says, meh. <laughs> right? It's no big deal. It's not the facts that are in dispute. What's in dispute is the story. Which story do you buy? Stories really do govern our lives. Today is the 75th anniversary of <clears throat> the liberation of Auschwitz. And there's a big gathering in Israel at Yad Vashem. Yad Vashem is the capital T-H-E, the uh, Holocaust memorial. It's in Jerusalem. It's almost a shrine. When you visit Israel, almost every, everyone goes there at least once. And they're having this conference there. Vladimir Putin is there, uh, Mike Pence is there, uh, future president Mike Pence is there. Um, it's, it's either sooner or later, but it's eventually President Pence, as long as you keep voting for the Electoral College. But anyway, that's another story. But who's not there is the president of Poland. Why isn't the president of Poland there? Auschwitz is in Poland. He's not there because his story about the Holocaust isn't Russia's story about the Holocaust, and a friend of Putin is paying for the entire event. So he wasn't invited. Now, the Russian story of the Holocaust and the Polish story of the Holocaust are both wrong. They're simply propaganda pieces trying to whitewash their respective group. When I was in Poland a few years ago, it wasn't against the law. <coughs> but it was against common practice to associate Poles with the Holocaust. <coughs> Excuse me. You can say that Poles were victims of the Nazis and then the Soviets, because that's how they tell it, but you couldn't say that Poles had anything to do with the slaughter of millions of Jews in Poland. Today, it's against the law. Their history is one of, we're the victims. 
The Russian history is similar. Now, they both have some facts to, to, to rest on, but the stories they are telling are primarily fiction. But it doesn't matter because it isn't the truth that moves us, it's the story. Story is everything. Do you know who Yuval Harari is? I've mentioned him here before. Yuval Harari is uh, an historian. He's at the uh, university, Hebrew University in Jerusalem. He's written three amazing, amazing books. Uh, if you haven't read him, I suggest at least you Google him because you can get all of his ideas. His books are like this thick, two of the three are really big. Impressive in your house, because if anyone comes in, oh, wow, you have that? Oh, yeah, right, you know. <laughs> as long as they don't ask you if you've read it, but. But you can get his ideas on YouTube in much little, you know, little clips. But he's, he's, his first book is called Homo Sapiens. It's just about, it's, it's a history of, of humanity. <coughs> his second book is Homo Deus. He believes that we're on the verge of becoming godlike. And his third book is 21 Lessons for the 21st Century, where he just tells you that things are bad, but they're going to get worse. <laughs> <coughs> so he's got this, this theory on, on storytelling. He says that story is what separates us from animals, sort of. Whales sing their story, they're sort of family tree, they, they sing it to one another. Animals communicate, animals may tell story, but what they don't tell is fictional stories. They may tell the story of their school, but they're not going to tell a story about something they invented in their heads. They don't have that capacity. We have that capacity. Anyone ever been to London? Not a well-traveled group, I can see that. <laughs> All right, if you ever go to London, if you ever get to go to London, A, take me with you, because I want to go back. But the most important thing about London, I went with some friends and my wife, and they all wanted to see different things. I could care less about the Queen. Oh, thank you very much. Thank you very much. It, it won't help, but I appreciate it. <laughs> I don't care about British history. I didn't care about, you know, all, I cared about one thing and one place. 221 B Baker Street. <laughs> That's the only thing I wanted to see. 221 B Baker Street. Who lives at 221 B Baker Street? Sherlock. Sherlock Holmes. You can go to 221 B Baker Street, and there's a place, there's a, it's an actual street, it's an actual you know, apartment. You can go in, you go upstairs, there's no Mrs. Hudson on the first floor but there's Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson's rooms on the second floor. You can go in, you know it's, it's their rooms because you pay to know that. Right? <laughs> and all their stuff is there because you don't want to pay money and go, oh, this was fake. No, if you're going to pay money, it's got to be real. You need to convince yourself. So you can walk around, you see all their stuff. I loved it there. I want to go back. I know that Sherlock Holmes is a fictional character of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. But I know that in a small little part of my brain, whereas most of my brain says, oh, it's real, it has to be real, I want it to be real. 
There's a whole Sherlockian society of people who are devoted to the ins and outs of the life of Sherlock Holmes. And they argue about different aspects of his biography, even though there really is no biography because there's no Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> the same thing with Harry, Harry Potter. People argue about, they, they use the houses in, in Hogwarts. I forget the different houses. But people will argue, I'm, you know, what, give me one of the houses. Like, what is it? Ravenclaw or Slytherin or where did Harry belong? Gryffindor, right? And they, oh no, I'm Gryffindor. That's made up. <laughs> they take it with the same seriousness. Some people will take the Myers-Briggs. I'm an INTJ. That explains everything about me. And it's all made up. <laughs> Story is everything. So Harari says that that's what separates us from animals. He says that human evolution, or the, the evolution of people into storytellers, he says, started about 70,000 years ago when we started to take seriously the product of our own imagination. He says people and, and animals live on two shared dimensions. So animals have their, and, and people, have their outer awareness. So animals, they know you're there. They're wary, maybe, of you being there. They also, along with us, have an inner awareness. They have some level of self-consciousness. What they don't have is a fictional reality in which they live. They don't have an imagine, imaginal realm that operates sometimes more powerfully than the other two. I mean, you can get the facts of global warming, climate change. And it doesn't move you. The facts are there. You can watch the ice caps melting, but it doesn't move us. Harari says, or actually Jonathan Safran Ford in his book on, uh, I think it's called The Weather Is Us, says it, you can watch them melt, but there's no compelling story that gets us motivated. The most important thing, this is according to, to that uh, Jonathan Safran Ford, the most important thing that we can do about climate change is not get the oil companies to change their policies. That'd be nice, and eventually maybe, but the thing you can do right now is become ve go vegan. Stop eating animals, stop wearing animals, just don't do it. Everyone has the capacity to do that, unless for some medical reason you need to have a cheeseburger. That may be true, I'm not a doctor. <laughs> but maybe you could, but you probably don't have that, and if you don't, there's no reason to eat meat. I'm wearing leather shoes. I'm wearing, guiltily wearing leather shoes. I have a leather belt. I'm guilty about that too. All right, and, and I have to fix that. I, I decided today that I have to fix that until I saw how much it would cost to change my shoes. But I don't have to eat meat. I haven't actually had meat in decades. But everyone could do that. You could stop eating it. Because animals produce most of the greenhouse gases. Now, I'm not saying it's the only thing you could do, but if everyone would simply say, you know what? I don't know where we're going for lunch afterwards, but I'm just gonna have a salad that could turn things around very quickly, according to this uh, The Weather Is Us book. 
We don't do that. Why? Because we don't, according to Saffron Ford, because we don't have a compelling story to do it. We're just not moved in the same way we're moved to fly to England, to London, to see 221B Baker Street. It doesn't move us. I mean, it's not hard to stop eating meat. I'm sure there are people who don't eat meat in here. And it wasn't that difficult. But most of us don't do it because we're just not motivated. And he says, because we don't have a story. Now, this is not a harangue about being a vegetarian. This is about stories. So let me move on. He says, 12,000 years ago, we started the storytelling thing, 70,000. 12,000 years ago, with the agricultural revolution, we entered into a whole new world of storytelling. Suddenly, we had enough food, or we had the capacity to make enough food to move from small little groups to much larger tribes and even whole nations. But you needed something to tie them all together, all these people together. And so we invented the capacity to create bigger stories. So if you read the Bible, for example, you're reading a bunch of different tribal narratives that a much later editor wove together so that everyone could have the same story. We know for a fact that the Jews were never enslaved in Egypt. No, maybe a couple of Jews were, were, you know, that happened to them. But the way the Bible says all the Jews were in Egypt and all the Jews were enslaved and all the Jews left together and there were 600,000 um, male Jews of warrior age. So double that for the rest of the population. And they all got liberated and they all went through the Red Sea and they all went into Canaan and they all wiped out all the Canaanites and they all settled there. We know for a fact that's not a fact. That's made up. It was made up by the people who were in Canaan trying to get all these different groups to get along. And so someone said, well, you remember when we were in Egypt? And you know, there's some, I don't know, I, mean, I don't know who they were, I'll just give them names. So they could, Carol, Sue, and Roger. There were some <laughs> <coughs> among those ancient people who said, I don't, I don't remember that. I've never been in Egypt. I would remember if I was a slave or even if my parents, I don't remember that. But then people say, but if you did remember that, we'd stop squabbling. And then you could see Carol Sue going, I remember that now. <laughs> Roger goes, no you don't, but still. <laughs> and that, that's how it becomes the story. And that's true for everything. I mean, think about, just think about money. Harari makes a big deal about money. Money is a story that we tell. If you go to a bonobo, he says, and offer the bonobo a banana, in exchange for a coconut. There's studies that show that if the, if the bonobo wants the banana, they'll make the trade. If you go to a bonobo and want the coconut, or the bonobo has a banana and you want it, and you offer them 10 bucks, they don't make the trade. You can up it to 50 bucks, they still won't make the trade. You can offer them any denomination of you know, American currency they don't want the trade. And it's not because they know it's not backed by the gold standard. It's because they know that all you're offering them is some flimsy piece of green paper that they can't eat or do anything with. So they won't make the trade. You and I will, 
right? You and I will, because we have a story about the meaning of those pieces of paper. If someone up, came up to you and just, you know, cut out a piece of construction paper, or maybe went to Frank and made it a little nicer than that <laughs> in, the, in the art department, and it looked like money, but you knew it wasn't money, and someone hands that to you and says, let me, you know, let me buy something, no, I don't want it, because it doesn't carry the story. It doesn't carry the story. In the, I have to look at my notes because he gives you all these, all these notes. He says in this, just about the same time of the uh, agricultural revolution, we also started getting more organized religions. And we started inventing these gods and goddesses that would back a story of one group's military economic dominance over another group. We started thinking those terms of you know, building fences and then building walls and having empires. And you needed a meta story. <coughs> and so you invented meta characters like gods. That's why in the Bible, the Hebrew Bible, God is always the Jewish God. Right? God sometimes gets mad at the Jews, but God never gives up on the Jews. He always says, yeah, I'm, I'm going to you know, give you a hard time for a couple centuries, but it's going to get better. Right? In the New Testament, God doesn't like the Jews so much. In the Quran, God's not a fan of the Christians. Bhagavad Gita, God never says, check out those Christians or those Muslims. It doesn't say that. The God of the book is always the God of the people who wrote the book. That's the point of having a God, to support your socioeconomic military structure. I mean, I think that's true. That's also what Harari says. The interesting thing about these later gods, though, is that they didn't have kids. Now, Christianity is an exception, that God has a son, but what Jesus inherits from God isn't uh, interfering with what the church owns, because the church is a stand-in. The reason that they don't have gods is because as people got more and more wealthy, they had to deal with this whole idea of inheritance. Who would inherit? And it became very fractious. So they made sure that it wasn't going to be like with, with um, the children of Caesar or something, that it wasn't going to be God's many children battling for control of God's, power, God's wealth. So eventually you end up with a disenfranchised God class. So again, in the Hebrew Bible, the Levites are not allowed to own property. They're wealthy as hell, but their wealth comes from a priest tax. Their wealth comes from being the priest, not from owning anything. So they don't own anything that they can pass on to their children. So there's no squabbling, that's the idea, there's no squabbling amongst the priest family because they don't own anything. Your only value is if you're functioning as a priest. Later on in, in the early church, before you get a married clergy, the reason, theoretically anyway, the reason why clergy are celibate is so that you don't have children of these clergy fighting over church property. Why did it take so many years, it was a decade, I think, for the Methodist church to finally split on the, the, the issue of, of, of uh, marriage <clears throat> equality? It wasn't because they didn't have, they didn't know who was on which side, it was because they couldn't figure out how to split the money and the buildings. But the church owns all the buildings. I mean, if you go start a Catholic church, the church owns that building, not the group who put the money up. 
It's not like a synagogue. You build a synagogue, you own the synagogue. You want to sell the synagogue, you've got to fight over who gets the proceeds. But in the church, it's different. The priests aren't supposed to have children. Now, some of them do, but we don't. Yeah. The pope's supposed to be celibate. Some of them were, not all. But they don't come out and say, oh, you know what? I'm the pope. Here's Pope Jr. <laughs> Everything's going to go to him. It doesn't work that way. So celibacy becomes part of the story because the story is serving an economic power structure that needs to be maintained. You, you follow me with all this? All right. So this undergoes another metamorphosis, Harari says, 5,000 years ago when we get printed books. He says, before that, everything that we knew about the gods and the goddesses and, and who owned what and all that was in the heads of the power brokers, the priests or the scribes or whoever it was. But once we could write things down, now the story could go much farther, but also become much more fixed. Because now it was printed. Now we began to worship the book. Right? If, if you drop, now a printed Bible is not a big deal in Judaism, but if you drop a Torah scroll, you're screwed. Right? That's bad. Right? You're not going to go to hell for it, but it's not a good thing to do. So people are very, ooh, the scroll is very, it's, it's a dead animal rolled up. That's all it is. And yet people are like, oh, the scroll, the scroll. When, when you get, uh, you go to an Episcopal church and they walk with the Bible, you know, and they hold it up like this and they're walking and everyone's like in awe of this book. In Islam, a printed Quran, like you'd buy in a Barnes & Noble, they don't count. It's the, 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 the Holy Quran is the, the hand-copied Quran, very similar to the, to the Torah. These books become sacred objects in and of themselves. But what they did was they allowed the stories that were local to become global and increase the power of those who control the story. All right. My point isn't that stories are bad. My point is that stories are everything. We cannot escape the story, even when you know it's a story. That's the Sherlock Holmes example and the Harry Potter example. Even though you know it's a story. You can't escape the story even when you know it's propaganda. It's too powerful. So what we have to look at isn't simply the power of story, but what the stories we tell are doing to us. And sometimes it's very subtle. So for example, in the last hymn we sang, uh, I meant to look it up, but I, I forgot, let's see if I can find it real quick. The third verse of the three verse hymn. Yeah, the, co the core of silence. Of course, it's all words, but okay. Um, <laughs> This is the third verse, in, in quotes, the true religion, in quotes. The true religion gathers up its text. In the beginning was the word. But I seek quietness behind that, behind that start and name, it with, and name it nothing, much less God. So here's a, a guy, Jim Riley, 
trying to undo a story. All right, so hear it again. The true religion, now he puts it in quotes. If he meant the true religion, it would have been without quotation marks. It's scare quotes almost. The true religion, which he, by which he means Christianity, because that's the only religion that opens the Gospel of John, but in the beginning was the word. He says, the true religion gathers up its text. Um, but, he says, I seek quietness behind that start and name it nothing, much less God. You hear what he's trying to do? He's trying to take the story that in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God and the Word becomes Jesus and he's undermining it. He's trying to do away with that story or at least weaken the foundation or weaken the power <coughs> of that <coughs> foundational story. It's brilliant, mostly because no one knows he's doing it. <laughs> and you just sing the song. And you have no idea that somewhere your brain is going, you know, it's making, is registering the fact that, wait, this isn't, what he's saying isn't what seems, is, what he's saying isn't what I'm singing, because I can't sing the scare quotes. <laughs> It's a brilliant undermining of the story. Zen Buddhism is a brilliant system for undermining stories, using stories. All right, Zen Buddhism says that it is a direct experience of reality beyond words and uh, I think it says thoughts and words, something like that. But its methodology is completely tied to language. The early rabbis, even now, but certainly the early rabbis of 2,000 years ago, were addicted to language, but used it in such a way as to undermine the obvious read of their stories. They call it midrash, where they just make the story say what it clearly does not say. The name of God, here's my last example, the name of God in the Bible is unpronounceable. It's not even a word. It's not really a name. It's just four consonants. Now, we tell stories about what it means, but why did they do that? They did that, I think, because someone, like Jim Riley in our hymnal, someone said, if we put a name to this, it's just going to get worse. So I'm going to come up with a name that isn't a name. Some of these people are brilliant. Most of them, however, are not. And most of us get trapped. So I'm going to end with this quote from Yuval Harari. That, that wasn't the quote. <laughs> that was the quote. Okay. In the 21st century, we will create more powerful fictions and more totalitarian religions than in any previous era. Remember I told you, he says, things are bad and they're going to get worse. In the 21st century, we will create more powerful fictions and more totalitarian religions than in any previous era. With the help of biotechnology and computer algorithms, these religions will not only control our minute-by-minute -minute existence, but will be able to shape our bodies, brains, and minds, <clears throat> and create entire virtual worlds complete with hells and heavens. Being able to distinguish fiction from reality and religion from science will therefore become more difficult but more vital than ever before. How we might do this 
is the topic of second hour. So I'm going to end there. Hopefully you are miserable, and uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll talk about that.